0: Listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist, we are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about twenty minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture reading this morning is Mark fifteen verses thirty-three through forty-seven. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land, until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us wait and see whether Elijah will come and take him down. When Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. There were also women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger, and of Hoseas and Salome, who followed him when he was in Galilee and ministered to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Then Joseph bought a linen cloth and, taking down the body, wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid it in a a tomb that had been hewn out of rock. He then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, saw saw where the body was laid. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: And my apologies for my pronunciations.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you for that reading, Cindy. I was going to say, I didn't know you spoke Aramaic. That was great. (laughs) (coughs) That was excellent. Excellent pronunciation. Oh, man. So uh, today, Mark's a bit of a milestone uh, in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We've been in this book for over a year now, uh, if you can believe it. Uh, We started uh, reading Mark together back uh, last September, September of last year, and we skipped a few weeks here and there. We had some holiday services, we had a few weeks where we kind of veered off course from Mark, but today is our 52nd Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe overkill for a book that's only 19 pages long, uh, but I digress. Um, we have been in this book for a year. 52 weeks, and we've only got two more to go, you guys. Just today, and next week, and we are done with the Gospel of Mark. So, that's a little update. Um, <clears throat> last week, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, we, we talked about how Mark presents the crucifixion as a coronation, uh, a crowning ceremony. He uses all this royal language and imagery, stuff like robes, a crown. You get the, the expensive wine mixed with myrrh, all sorts of stuff that would have been very familiar to Mark's audience as, like, royal stuff. He takes Jesus' execution and turns it into a coronation to show how Jesus transforms defeat into victory. That's a really powerful, uplifting message, right? For today, though, I want to invite us to linger in the defeat for just one more week. I want to invite us... To stay here in the sense of loss, the sense of losing, for one more week together as we talk about the death of Jesus. Nobody likes to lose, right? Like, it's not fun. Uh, Whether we're talking about uh, losing in sports or a game, if we're talking about, like, misplacing some sort of an item, or the absolute worst-case scenario, losing someone you love, losing a part of ourselves. None of us like to lose. Uh, I picked up a really weird habit, actually, uh, when I was a kid, and I haven't grown out of it yet. Um, I hate to lose. In fact, I, I am so resistant to losing that if I do something and I'm not good at it, I just never do it again. You would think I'd have grown out of this by now at like 37, but no, like this is still something I wrestle with. Um, this happened to me with sports as a kid, for example. Uh, if you can tell, I'm not, I'm not an athlete. Um, but like I went outside to play catch with my dad once, it didn't go well, and I never did it again. Um, there's all these things that like normal people can do that I can't because I tried it once and it didn't take. Um, I don't know how to ride a bike. I don't know how many people know that about me. Um, I tried once, it didn't work, so I just never rode a bike again. Um, I can't really swim. I've been in deep water and I haven't drowned, but like I'm not a strong swimmer. I've never been a strong swimmer, so I just never go in water. Problem solved. This is not a good way to live, by the way. Like, I'm not, I'm not recommending any of this. I'm just sharing this to illustrate this little quirk of mine, how much I hate and am resistant to losing. But no matter how you cut it, the death of Jesus is a loss. It's a total loss. Uh, Jesus loses his life. Uh, Jesus' his followers lose their teacher, their rabbi, their friend. Um, it's a loss for the movement, right? This guy was bringing the kingdom of God. These Jesus people talking all this stuff about Jesus. This is a loss. They lose in this story. And the text is just screaming at us with imagery of loss and darkness. Uh, the sun goes dark. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not going to try the Aramaic. Um, <laughs> It's worth noting, though, that this Greek text, the gospel, phase shifts into Aramaic, the language Jesus would have spoken from the time he was a boy, to show the emotion and the pain of this scene. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curtain in the temple rips in half, right? That's the curtain, Um, if you're not familiar with, like, first century temple architecture. It's the, it's the curtain that separates the most holy place where God dwells from the rest of the temple. That tears in two. We usually talk about that as like the barrier between humanity and God being open, like a, a sort of victory, which, which is true. But you also have the imagery of grief there. Mark's picturing God the Father tearing his clothes in grief at the loss of the Son, the same way any father back then would tear their clothes as a sign of loss. It's a loss. All this loss, all this darkness. Then we get this line, uh, verse 40. I think we got it up on the screens. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Josephus, And Salome, who followed him when he was in Galilee and ministered to him, and there were many other women who had come up with Jesus to Jerusalem. We've got all these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, other gospel writers tell us that uh, Mary the mother of Jesus was, was present in this group, and many other female followers of Jesus. These women who walked with Jesus, who ministered to him, who learned from him, they're still there grieving and watching all this play out from a distance. Remember by this point in the story, all the male disciples have left. They like, they pieced out. Um, Peter denied him. Judas sold him out. The rest of the twelve scattered. Jesus is depicted as totally isolated and alone but he's not alone there's this group of women this group of female disciples female followers of Jesus who stay with him this whole time and they're there when he dies to ensure he gets a proper burial why do these women stay with Jesus when all the men scatter like, why, why don't they just run off with their tail between their legs, like Peter and all the other disciples with an XY chromosome? Why do the women stay? There's probably a number of like answers we could give, right? Like, we could, we could speculate. It could be that women are just braver than men, right? Any, any girl power? Woo, yeah, there you go. I'm not pandering at all. It could be that women are just, are just braver than men. That actually tracks with my experience most of the time. Um, It could be that the men have more to lose. Uh, Remember, uh, the official charge against Jesus is that he's a political revolutionary. Uh, Crucifixion is a punishment for, for people who try to start seditions, revolutions. If a male disciple shows up at the cross, probably much more likely to end up on another cross right next to Jesus. That could be part of it. There's all sorts of reasons we could point to for why the women stay when the men run away, but there's one I think is key. The male disciples followed Jesus because they thought he was going to win, but the female disciples were used to losing. The male disciples followed Jesus because they thought he was going to win, while the women were used to losing. We see this all over the Gospel of Mark. Peter, James, and the others, they thought Jesus was their meal ticket. He was their, he was their key to fame and glory. This guy is the Messiah. He's the promised king of Israel, and we're his right-hand men, right? We always see the disciples arguing, like, which one of them is the greatest? Who's going to get to sit next to Jesus when he comes into glory? They think this guy's bringing the kingdom, They all just marched into Jerusalem, what, five days ago, hailing Jesus as king. But when it all goes sideways and Jesus is arrested, he ends up on a cross. They scatter. Because it's clear they're not going to win. They haven't backed the winner. The men scatter because they were in this to win. The female disciples stay because they're used to losing. Think for a minute about the experience of the women by the cross. Not just on Good Friday, but like their experience in life. They grew up in a patriarchal society, a society that was not built for them on any level. It was a society that dehumanized them, stripped them of rights, treated them like property, These female disciples have no illusions about sitting at Jesus' right hand someday. You never see, like, Mary and Salome arguing over who's the greatest. They know what it is to lose. They're used to losing. Because of that, they stay by Jesus to the end. Their faithfulness doesn't depend on winning. I worry a lot about the church in America— Probably way more than I should. It's not like I can do much about it. But I worry about American Christians. I worry about us because I don't think we know how to lose. We're not very good, not very experienced at losing. We fight culture wars, right? It's a big thing with American Christians. We, we want to win America for Jesus. Win. We have all these hymns and especially, like, contemporary praise songs about, like, winning and victory and winning the battle, all this triumphalistic stuff that we sing. There's no space for lament in most American worship services. It's all happy, happy, joy, joy, life is amazing, Jesus is my boyfriend. Like, that's, that's the vibe. There's no lament We have conversations uh, in small groups with other Christians, with friends, who will open up and share some, like, dark thing that they're working through, something on their heart, some struggle, and, like, more often than not, we respond with these platitudes, like this toxic positivity, bumper sticker sort of theology. Maybe you've you've been the one doing it, maybe you've been at the receiving end, but, like, God's got a plan, right? Just, Just have faith. Um... Everything happens for a reason, right? Uh, the, the Lord won't give you more than you can handle. That, that's a favorite one of mine. Um, everything's going to be okay. Like, that's, that's the message when the reality is everything isn't okay. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes we lose big. It's not okay, this emphasis on winning is so core to like Christian culture in America. Most of us came to faith. Most of us received the gospel as a message about winning. If you say the right prayer, if you go to the right church, if you believe the right things, if you follow all the little steps on the tract or whatever, you win. Right? That's the gospel for most Christians. We don't, we don't use, you know, the language of like winning and losing, you, that's gross." But like, we talk about going to heaven when we die, or avoiding the other place. What is heaven, if not the ultimate win? A lot of us are only here. We're only in this thing because we've been told we're going to win in the end. We think we've backed the winner which sounds a lot like the male disciples to me. The male disciples follow Jesus because they thought he was going to win while the female disciples are used to losing. Uh, there's a preacher I really love named Tony Campolo. Got his picture up here. Uh, Tony Campolo is one of my favorite preachers. Anyone ever hear this guy? Yes, I've been, I've been listening to his sermons for decades. Uh, he's got to be, he's pushing 90, I'm sure of it. He's an American Baptist minister and sociologist down in Pennsylvania, where I'm from. Uh, phenomenal preacher. And Tony Campolo has this famous sermon, he does it every year on Good Friday, called Sunday's Coming. Um, and if you, if you aren't familiar with Good Friday, that is the, the Friday before Easter, the, the day we just read about when Jesus died. Um, He preaches this sermon every year on Good Friday, and the point of the sermon is that when things get bad, when we're struggling, we can hold on to faith because Sunday's coming. That's the message. You might be struggling right now. You might be down and out, but Sunday's coming. You might be at the end of your rope facing some hard times, but Sunday's coming. He picks up like a mantra almost. Sunday's coming. By the end of the sermon, like the whole church is like riled up and saying along with them, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. It's a great sermon, very uplifting. And like I believe that message, right? That's solid theology. Sunday is coming. We do have hope to press on through Good Friday because we believe in resurrection. We believe that Sunday is coming. But I have a little problem with the theology of that sermon because the women at the cross have no idea that Sunday is coming. They have no clue about the resurrection. They don't know Jesus is going to be back in two days, and they're there anyway out of faithfulness. I don't think I have that level of faith. I don't think most of us have that level of faith to stay there, to stay in it, to keep the faith on Good Friday with no idea that Easter is right around the corner. We want to win. We were told that in the end we win this thing. It's what we preach. That's what we believe, that's the message, but then we wonder why so many people fall away from the faith when the losses start start mounting, when it becomes clear that we're not winning in this life. We talk a lot about justice here in our church, uh, racial justice, economic justice, social justice. These are really important values that are deeply rooted in our faith. We, we fight for them. We push for them. We work toward them. But I tell you, I've seen so many people burn out in the fight for justice. I've seen so many people lose hope, become jaded, walk away from the whole thing because it hurts too much to lose. Do you know that every four days, five people die in the desert at our southern border trying to get into the United States? Every four days, five immigrants trying to get to America die in the desert. I learned that stat from a pastor uh, when I was at that conference in Kansas City a few weeks ago. Um, It's a pastor from Arizona who's been working with the immigrant community, the undocumented community there for over 20 years, um, helping people get their basic needs, needs met, helping folks find work, helping people uh, get documented, helping reunite families that were separated uh, along the journey. He told me that statistic, and I was like, how do you do it? Like, how do you keep showing up for a quarter century with stats like that, with all the setbacks, all the heartache, how have you not burned out yet? And his response floored me. He said, when I started working with immigrants, I had no illusions about winning. I knew there'd be challenges. I knew there'd be setbacks. I knew we weren't going to solve the problem of U.S. immigration policy, but I'm in this work anyway because God called me to it. I'm in this work anyway because God called me to it. He has no illusions about winning. He does it out of faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, Over the last few years, we've done a number of studies here at our church, uh, small groups, uh, events like Just Desserts, Um, we've read White Fragility together, we've read Color of Compromise, small groups around the topic of of racial justice. Uh, We've talked about systemic racism, we've grappled with our own complicity, and the conversation almost always comes back to the same question. What do we do about this? How do we fix it? How are we going to win the fight against racism in America? We're not going to. We're not going to win the fight against racism on this side of eternity. We're not going to fix it. We're not gonna arrive at some magical moment where it's not an issue anymore, and we can just move on to something else. Racism has been around since before our grandparents. It's gonna be here long after our grandchildren are gone. We're not gonna win. We're not gonna win the fight against patriarchy. We're not gonna win the fight against violence. We're not gonna win the fight against homophobia. If our goal is to win, I've got some bad news for you. We're not going to win on this side of eternity. We're going to burn out if that's the goal. So why fight? Why press on in the struggle for justice? Why do we keep doing this and keep pushing and working towards something that we have no illusions about winning? We've gotta do it out of faithfulness to Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only way you do this work and don't burn out. You do it not because you're gonna win, not because you're gonna reach some set utopia goal perfection. You do it out of faithfulness to Jesus. The ladies at the tomb have no illusions about winning. They're there because God called them there. They're there because they walked with Jesus for three years. They're there out of faithfulness. What would it look like if Christians in America stopped trying so hard to win and focused on being faithful to Jesus? For one, I think we'd burn out a lot less. Uh, If you've gone through burnout, I've gone through burnout. It's not fun. Uh, If we're motivated by faithfulness, I think we'd find more joy in our work, more joy in the struggle. If your goal is to win, you're going to quit as soon as it becomes clear that you're losing. But if we do what we do out of faithfulness to Jesus, the same Jesus who died on a cross on Good Friday, that is how you find the strength and the joy to press on. Uh, If we stop trying to win, I think we're going to be a lot more willing to admit when we're wrong, right? Um, I think we'd be a lot more humble as Christians, a lot more open to acknowledging our weaknesses and our mistakes if we were operating out of faithfulness to Jesus. Christians who aren't trying to win have no need to wage a culture war. Think about that. If you're not trying to win, Uh, We don't have to prove that we're right, convince other people that they're wrong. We don't have to make America a Christian nation, whatever that means anyway. If our faith is informed by Good Friday, if we have Good Friday faithfulness. You want to transform the world for Christ without waging culture war? Be faithful to Jesus. Get caught following Jesus in public. Love like Jesus, be present like Jesus, cultivate the kind of faithfulness that isn't trying to win, and maybe get used to losing. We've got to learn how to lose if we're going to have anything like the Good Friday faithfulness of these female disciples. That's a tall order though, right? Like, I know, I know for me, I still don't want to lose I still really want to win. And whatever it is these ladies had, it, it seems unreachable almost. But they're not the only characters in this story. We got two other people in this story I want to talk about real briefly. Two winners that we haven't touched on at all. Two men, actually, Joseph of Arimathea and the centurion. Two incredibly powerful men who portray very different responses to the death of Jesus. Uh, We're told the centurion, the Roman soldier, when he sees the way in which Jesus dies, he exclaims, truly this man was God's son. We've got a a genuine statement of faith there from a Roman soldier. The first person who declares Jesus' sonship after he dies is a Roman soldier. He makes this statement, and that's it. That's all he does. He, he believes something about Jesus, he sees something in Jesus, but he doesn't follow it through at all. He doesn't change his life trajectory in any way we can tell. Um, he doesn't leave his life as a Roman soldier. He doesn't switch sides. He doesn't uh, go to comfort the women as they're mourning the death of Jesus. He goes right back to working for Rome, right back to backing the winners, even after he sees that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, we hear from the centurion again a few verses later when Pilate hears Jesus died, this this soldier is like, yep, Jesus is dead all right. We killed him real good. That's the centurion. But then there's Joseph of Arimathea. We know almost nothing about Joseph of Arimathea. There's all sorts of legends. You watch Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. There's all, I mean, you know. But Mark doesn't give us very much information about Joseph of Arimathea. What he does tell us, though, is illuminating. Joseph of Arimathea is a respected member of the council. That's the council as in the Sanhedrin. Remember them? The the people who, who deemed Jesus a heretic and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified? He's on that council. We're also told that Joseph was waiting expectedly for the kingdom of God with no explanation of, of how. Um, Mark, maybe that means Joseph was some secret follower of Jesus, like a Nicodemus type. That's possible. Um, maybe he wasn't there when the council condemned Jesus, although it said the whole council was there. So uh, Maybe he was. Maybe he condemned Jesus, but then seeing how he died, he had a change of heart. We don't know. What we do know is is Joseph of Arimathea responds very differently to the death of Jesus, and his response is instructive for Christians like me who don't know how to lose. He identifies with these female followers of Jesus who are mourning by the cross. We don't hear him say, it's all going to be okay. God won't give you more than you can handle, ladies. Nothing like that. Instead, He enters into solidarity with them and goes over to Pilate. He uses his power and his authority to get the body of Jesus taken off the cross so that he and these women can give him a proper burial. You got to realize, typically, the Romans would leave bodies on the cross for days in public view. It's a way of saying this is what happens to losers who mess with us side with us, side with Rome, back a winner. Joseph uses his power. He goes boldly to Pilate, identifies with the losers, risking outing himself, possibly, as a follower of Jesus. And he gets Jesus' body taken down from the cross, wraps it in a linen he paid for, and then puts his body in the tomb. If we want to have a Good Friday faith, we've got to look a little bit more like Joseph of Arimathea, than the centurion. And we've got to look a whole lot more like these women. We've got to learn how to lose and accept defeat. We've got to learn that following Jesus does not mean you're always going to win. It might mean you put your neck on the line, you take a risk of exposing yourself, It could mean identifying with the losers, the left out, the marginalized, left behind, and there's usually a cost for that. Joseph was ready to pay that cost, and we need to be too. Not because Sunday's coming, or because it's all going to work out, or because we know that in the end we win this thing. We need to be ready to pay the cost of Good Friday out of faithfulness to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and his faithfulness. Thank you for the amazing faithfulness of these women who stay with him till the end. Help us to have that kind of faithfulness, Lord. Help us to turn away from our constant need to win and embrace losing. Help us enter into solidarity with the left out. Out of faithfulness to you. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening.